Welcome back to Mind Milk Theory. It's a new season, but I remain sometimes contemporary artist Jim Lockie. Now, let me talk a little bit about my hopes for this season two. I listened back to season one. I really enjoyed all the episodes, but what I loved the most was listening to those interviews with artists talking about their sketchbook practice. What I enjoyed most was hearing those different perspectives or also hearing the same theme described in different facets and things over a series of weeks. And that's what I want to do with future seasons. So each season from now on will have a theme. Sometimes it will just be me talking because I enjoy doing that too, talking about things I'm passionate about, presenting research, that kind of thing. And sometimes it's going to be interviewing lots of different people, but every season will have a specific theme that we will chase down and explore. The theme this season, listener, is Beowulf, the old English poem, which is really could be seen to be the first kind of major work of English literature, even though the language of Beowulf is vastly different from modern English. I actually did an episode about Beowulf in season one, which I made when I was just starting out on my journey with this text, which I've continued to research, as well as um, the broader context of the Anglo-Saxon period and storytelling techniques from that era. And I'm just going deep with it. So the episodes this season, I'm hoping to keep them a bit shorter and they're going to be fun. They're going to, it's going to be hopefully interesting. And sometimes it might lean a bit more academic, but I think it's going to be pretty accessible. The only thing that's going to keep you at bay, listener, from enjoying this is if you not are not familiar with the story and with the text. So if you haven't read Beowulf, I would really encourage you to go and do that. It's only about 3,000 lines long. It doesn't take long to read. And it is really interesting for a whole bunch of reasons, not least because it's it's part of our inheritance. You know, if you're an English speaker, uh, if you're living in the UK, this is part of your inheritance. And so it's really interesting uh, from that perspective, uh, if nothing else. But actually, it's good as well. And uh, hopefully we'll explore some of the reasons for that in the coming weeks. What I wanted to do with this episode was give you the introduction to uh, an essay that I wrote again early on while I, when I was researching Beowulf that I uploaded to my website. When I read it back, I can see that I was fresh at this thing. There's stuff uh, that I wrote in there that I probably wouldn't write now. My position is a lot more nuanced, but it does serve quite well as an introduction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the introduction to that essay. And if you find it interesting, you want to dig deeper, you can go to my website, jimlockie.com and read the rest of it. Okay, so the essay is called Beowulf of Hope and Heathens. And this is the introduction there too. Questions of lineage have almost always been at stake for people of power. We might like to imagine that the obsession with lineage is not so important in the present day, but in the last decade we saw how the wholly spurious Bertha movement questioning the lineage of President Obama 
took hold and shaped American politics in ways we still feel. Lineage still affects us. In theology, the lineage of Christ was of such importance to his early biographers that Matthew's Gospel opens with an exhaustive genealogy reaching back to Adam. And lineage, of course, has always been of paramount importance to monarchs. Alfred the Great, who became King of Wessex in 871, and all of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in 886, was claimed to be descended from Noah. Se chef was Noes Sunu, and he was enan ver erche geboren. Now, my pronunciation of Old English is undoubtedly terrible, but I thought I'd give it a try. That translates to, Chef was Noah's son, and he was born inside the ark. This quote from Textus Refensis, written in the 12th century, echoes claims Alfred made of himself in 855, according to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, connecting his ancestral line to Christian scripture, thus avoiding any of the expectations put upon, or ethnicities assumed of, the three sons named in the biblical account. The house of Wessex was also regularly said to be descended from the Germanic god Woden. This genealogy effectively provides the king of the Anglo-Saxons with dual citizenship, theologically speaking. He is a descendant of the great kings across the North Sea that were remembered by poets in the old stories, and at the same time connected to Christian history. It is often imagined that when kings and peoples turned to Christianity, they completely and immediately abandoned their prior beliefs, and though Bede and other Christian writers did their best to present history as if it did happen that way, it rarely did and it rarely does. More often, the reality was muddier. Christianity was sometimes incorporated into previous practice, sometimes tolerated alongside or as a veneer, and sometimes the previous beliefs were not thrown out, but reconsidered and recontextualized in the light of the new doctrine. No society transitions to a completely new conception of the world overnight. Art often provides a proving ground to explore changing ideas. The Dream of the Rude, written in Old English, combines Christian and pagan imagery and alludes to the Norse Yggdrasil, or wild tree, in its tale of the tree that gave itself up to become the cross and bear Christ. But rather than give a list of examples, I'll proceed at this point to the focal point of this essay, Beowulf, first composed somewhere in the 8th century and surviving in a manuscript from circa 1000. Beowulf remembers the mythology and geography of a pagan past in tones that both honours it and laments it, whilst inflecting its story through a lens of a Christian present. Beowulf's world of heroes is at once worthy of epic-scale poetic consideration, while simultaneously presented as doomed and fading. The Christian elements of the poem are popularly described as later insertions to a once completely pagan text. However, I will argue that the religious tension is inherent, innate and central to the Beowulf story. It is a Christian text. Beowulf explores the duality of Anglo-Saxon identity and at times produces lines of verse that baffles later readers 
hoping for the poem to provide a resolved and clear theological position. I will draw out some moments from the text to discuss, and I believe that together they speak to a writer attempting to identify the new God within old stories. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about the patriarch Jacob going to sleep and having a dream of angels ascending and descending from heaven. The text then says, Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. Beowulf, in part, feels like a story that claims that the Lord was with our ancestors and they knew it not. So there you go. That's the introduction to my essay, Beowulf of Hope and Heathens, that I wrote very early on in my exploration of this text. And you can read the whole thing on my website, jimlockie.com, under the blog section. In future episodes of this podcast, we'll be looking at different aspects of the Beowulf poem. We'll be looking at the um, Anglo-Saxon concept of weird, uh, this kind of kind of like fate and exploring how that worldview changes over time. We'll be looking at kennings, which are these amazing kind of like mashup metaphor adjective things uh, that are all over Beowulf and Old English, but not really used these days anymore. Uh, but they're a really interesting kind of way of producing new words so we'll be looking at that and all sorts of other interesting and fascinating stuff. I'll see you next time. Bye.